0: Hello and welcome to episode four of Southbank Centre's book podcast with me, Ted Hodgkinson. If you haven't listened before, we're bringing you the finest writers, poets and thinkers from across the globe, on stage and backstage at Europe's largest art centre. Writers, poets, thinkers and from around the world, and the occasional gem from our archive and recordings. In this episode, we're going to be talking about migration and civil war. We'll be hearing from two acclaimed writers about how stories and poetry can take us beyond the headlines about conflict and crisis, through the scrim of statistics, and in a troubled world, restore our shared sense of humanity. I'm here with Nick McCower, whose collection, The Kingdom of Gravity, is an unflinching account of the horrors of Idi Amin in Uganda, a war of liberation that brought its own barbarous atrocities. It's also a luminous meditation on the contrary pulls of attachment and flight, exile and longing for homeland. Good to have you here, Nick. Oh, good to be here. We'll also be bringing you some highlights from Khaled Hosseini's recent appearance at Southbank Centre. If by any chance his name doesn't ring a bell, then his books certainly will. Afghan-born author whose family sought political asylum in the United States when he was a teenager, his books have sold over 55 million copies around the world, including The Kite Runner, A Thousand Splendid Sons, and A Collection of Short Stories and The Mountains Echoed. As well as being a best-selling author, in 2006, he was appointed a UNHCR Goodwill Ambassador, that's UN High Commissioner for Refugees. Last week, here at Southbank Centre, Khaled Hosseini came and spoke to us in a sold-out RFH in conversation with journalist Razia Iqbal. They talked about his new illustrated story, Sea Prayer, that acts as a response to the current refugee crisis and was inspired by a trip he made to Afghanistan with the UNHCR. (laughs) Nick, The Kingdom of Gravity, one of the things that's remarkable about it is it captures these contradictory impulses of longing for home and also the desire for flight and escape from civil war and conflict. The book is, as I said, a really unflinching account of the violence and the atrocities that happened there. But it also humanises that experience and places us in, in relation to those people who experienced it. That goes beyond um, the stats, the, the slightly numbing statistics we might hear about civil war. For you, what? why did you reach for poetry when you were trying to capture your experience? What can a poem show us of that experience?
1: I think it's kind of full circle. I think in many ways me having to leave my country created the poet. There is something about being a, a poet where language is not enough, where then, and then you, you use poetry to do things to language, to... Express the feelings, the attitudes, the thoughts that you can't fully utter to other people. I never really wanted to write a story about Uganda because I I didn't fully understand my story. And it was only until I went back into it and I thought, look, I realised that my version of Uganda in comparison to what the world thinks of Uganda are two different things. And the only way I can humanise that experience is to take you to this, rather than avoid it, which is, which is easier to do, is to take you to the story and show you the people. And that might mean having to look at horrible things, but it also might mean, you know, a connection. And I think what poetry can do, it has this great ability to connect somebody uh, and also um, educate somebody at the same time.
0: So I was hoping for that emotional connection with the work so for you a kind of experience of exile was also an experience that the narrative that was being told about uganda was very different from your experience and that's what spurred you on to write
1: yeah i think what it was is i just realized that you know we you know when people mention my country they only think really of one person they think of idi amin or mm. or or the president they never think of the people and so you know i i I'd visited there recently a few years ago with my wife for my sister's wedding, and my wife loved it. And she had a totally different experience to what people were talking about in the news. And I thought, how do do I make, how do I connect the humans of Uganda to the humans of the outside world? You know, and and this was my attempt to do that. So I thought I had to go to the, the biggest knowing that they had of it, which was the Idi Amin regime, and then, and actually tell them from a different perspective and I hope it works Yeah. You know, so yeah
0: I think it does <laughs> can we hear a poem from the collection
1: sure so I'm going to read Beatitude uh, which is one of the early poems in the collection when a rebel leader promises you the world seen in commercials he will hold a shotgun to the radio announcer's mouth and use a quilt of bristling static to muffle the tears when the bodies disappear discarded like the husk of mangoes he will weep with you in those hours of reckoning and judgment into a hollow night when the crowds disperse. When by paraffin light his whiskey breath tells you your mother's wailings in your father's bed are a song for our nation as he sits with you on the veranda to witness a sunrise, say nothing. Slaughter your herd. Feed the soldiers who looted your mills and factories. Let them dance in your garden while the old man watches. Then when you sleep and your blood turns to kerosene, Find your mother gathering water at the well to stave off the burning. Shave her head with a razor from the kiosk. When the fury has gathered, take her hand and run. Past the field's odor of blood and bones, past the checkpoint, past the swamp, towards that smoky disk flaring on the horizon. Run till your knuckles become as white as handkerchiefs. Run into a night's fluorescent silence. Run till your lungs become a furnace of flames. Run past the border. Run till you no longer see yourself in other men's eyes. Run past sleep, past darkness visible. Stop when you find a country where they do not know
0: your name. Such an evocative poem. Thank you so much for reading that, Nick. One of the reasons I was keen for you to read that was because you start off with this rebel leader who's voicing propaganda and kind of projecting an image of... of Ugandan life, and then it moves towards this familial context in which you evoke a a family and the smi- sights and smells and sounds of a of a family life, mm. and it sort of challenges the 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 advertisement image that the rebel leader has presented. And then that last section seems to me to be about trying to transcend and ex- escape from from that torment. Um, it it seems like. Really, what you're showing us are the sights and smells of family life lived amongst civil war.
1: Yes, I think what people don't realise is that nobody chooses war. You know, like there are normal lives existing, and then war erupts, and the the eruption of war destabilises normal human existence. And I think I was trying to show that sweep. You know, and and the important thing about war is is. The human lives it it ruins, and a lot of times, what what headlines is is that kind of sense of we are the leaders, we are trying to do the right thing, go behind us. But what is is often hidden is this is destroying a mother, a father, a you know a child, a family, and and so forth.
0: So, yeah. is the poem in a way trying to disarm
1: propaganda? Totally. I think it's trying to disarm propaganda, but also, I mean, particularly in, in Uganda, when you think that all our leaders weren't, till the time of Idi you know Amin, mean? no, nobody was officially elected. It was just take over, take over, take over. And so this notion of democracy, a lot of countries haven't fully experienced it. And when you haven't fully experienced democracy, then, you know, you look at a country and, and some of the accusations that are made towards Uganda. You think, well, they need to have the opportunity to have a proper democracy mm. you know
0: and it's one of the other things a poem can do is to complicate this idea of a single image and you mentioned earlier that if people in the west had an idea of Uganda it might be Idi Amin it might yes. be one person yeah but the, a poem can show us the whole range of human characters that exist yes Beyond that one individual has become synonymous with the country
1: yes absolutely and 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 also there's the complexity of characters, so you know it's <laughs> we were just talking earlier about James Bond, but like um you know what makes a good villain is you know that there's is part of their humanity, whether we like to admit or not idiomin was was brought into power by by the uh, uh, the colonial fathers, and they thought they had a man that would would look after the country on their behalf. And that pretty much created, created this narrative that we now have where we're like, oh, what's going on with Uganda? And, but if you trace it back, it's like, how do you, from that, draw out the history of the people and mm-hmm. still have them have be proud of their country, not just think of it as, oh, gosh, we've got this blight on our country, this part, this part of history that we cannot erase, but also to to, to acknowledge that, wow, look how you, you triumphed over that period in the sense that you, you survived it you know, because we all have to survive in our lives, the highs and the lows of,
0: of existence. What's striking about the collection is that despite all of the lows you described, the the violence you described, there are these these luminous moments, these moments of joy, humour, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, and that's that's a big part of this. As you mentioned about your trip recently back to Uganda with your wife, that you're showing us that other side of Ugandan life as well, in the midst of this tragedy and unfolding.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's kind of well, Uganda is a paradise. That's what people often say when they go there. They they they're also wow, this place is beautiful, you know. So, and I think I I wanted people to 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 notice that. So it, it, I'm not trying to draw attention to the war. The war will take care of itself. What I was trying to draw attention to was this beautiful paradise that, that I'm, I belong to, but also the people, you know, who are also in themselves beautiful, despite what is being placed upon them. Because no, as I say, nobody chooses war, you know. Mm-hmm.
0: I think that's a good point to hear our first clip from Khalid Hussaini's event with us, um, because I think there's a lot, there are a lot of affinities between what you're describing and what inspired him to write Sea Prayer. Because it was inspired by that indelible photo of Alan Kurdi um, a three-year-old Syrian refugee on the beach in Turkey that travelled across the world and created an enormous response. The illustrated story is is a letter in a monologue form um, by a father to a child um, speaking on the eve of their journey. And we're going to hear a clip in a moment from Khalid Hussaini, who, in his distinctive voice and just a few deaf brushstrokes, immerses you in this heart story of an ordinary family riven by extraordinary circumstances.
2: Like what we're experiencing in parts of Europe and frankly also in the United States is a series of misconceptions and a poor understanding of who refugees are, where they come from, what they're facing, what they're fleeing. Much of it, is, I think, is based on not quite understanding what is happening and, um, and so that's why I think storytelling is vital. I think having dialogues around this issue is vital um, because otherwise you're just relying on um, verbiage and um, assertions that come to you as they pass through a tortuous canal of agenda and bias. Um, I, I, I think virtually everyone, if when I was in Lebanon, I kept thinking. God, I wish the world was here with me. I wish there could be a fly on the wall. I wish they could hear what I'm hearing. I wish they could see what I'm seeing because they would understand.
0: That's strikingly similar to what you just said about Uganda being a paradise. Yeah. Um, and that if you could be there, that people would understand. If you could take people with you. Is that what stories and poems can do? They can transport us in a way that perhaps other art forms can't.
1: I totally agree. I think the world, the universal technology is story. and The other thing about what poems do is um, stories do as well, but poems—it's one of their characteristics—is they're a time machine. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think both of us—you know—I've taken you back to Uganda in the nineteen seventies. You know, you go back to Syria, and what you're able to do is able to see your world in in three D, and pull out your biases and your prejudices, and actually connect from a sense of the emotions and the spirits and and that more ethereal essence of who we are mm. you
0: know. And when Khaled is describing the series of misconceptions around the refugee crisis that also seems like it's something that you've been consciously pushing against when you're describing the experience of Ugandan civil war and, and exile.
1: Yeah I mean um, I was touched by something that Inouye Ellum said in one of his interviews but also I totally agree is that and it's something I'm looking at in a in a play I'm working on is that at what point do you become the other? You know, so when I was in Uganda, I was just a Ugandan. It's mm-hmm. only when I came here, if I tick myself on a, on a survey, I am not a native. And so that sense of feeling like you do not belong, nobody chooses that position. A lot of times we, we can see the profits of war. So we say, oh, if we win, we, this is what happens. But we never wager the, the costs of war. And the cost of that is it, it creates the refugee. You know you can leave for beneficial reasons, but
0: nobody chooses to leave and it's a danger book because because when we're bombarded with statistics about something like the refugee crisis, and we assume oh they're coming here because they they're making a choice, but actually it's not a choice at all
1: no it's not a choice i mean when you're if, for example if you're if all your family are being killed, it's not a choice, mm-hmm. or if there are no jobs it's not it's no longer a choice or if all the the houses have been bombed or whatever, it's no longer a choice. It's now, now you have to think, okay, do I go next door where there's tribal violence? You Because know, a lot of times the way the countries were cut up in Africa, their tribes are in different countries. They're the same tribe. Like I'm from the border of Kenya and Uganda. They're parts of my tribe are in Kenya, parts of my tribe are in Uganda. So a lot of times when they're moving to its for they're trying to get economic gain to help themselves. But ideally, a lot of times they also want to come back. So in the ideal situation, what we'd want is for countries to heal themselves. But the the length of which wars perpetuate, they never seem to, to re- resolve or reconcile. And I think what we struggle with, I mean, it's a human condition, but what we struggle with is reconciliation or even, for want of a better word, forgiveness.
0: So what can literature do?
1: I think what literature does is it's more than a history book. It's an emotional echo chamber. And it's important that we we hold on to these emotions, not not to damage us, but to understand what people are going through. I don't want to, you know, I I would never fully be able to understand the Syrian experience, but I can I can share in their, in an understanding of the of the Syrian experience through reading something like Sea Prayer, and I think that's important. What that literature holds that space, and it holds it, you know, to give all the nuances of the voices, mm. uh, and the voices on all sides. I think we need to shed light on some of the horrible things in, in that have existed in the world, but also some of the most beautiful things. So I don't want people to think of Uganda as a horrible place. I want them to remember it's a paradise, that it has people, but horrible things have happened there. Mm. And I also want them to, to, to come back, you know, and also to feel welcome and to know that they're that they cared for. And I think literature does that. So I remember I used to live in Saudi Arabia, and similarly, you know, right now there is a narrative about who the Muslim person is but I've seen some very friendly people who looked after me while I was living in in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia I think what our language does it transports us around the world to people's places and their emotions just with our ears and with our imagination we're able to enter That I'm able to enter your world and you're able to enter mine and and that is a, an emo, emotional
0: I know it sounds strange but emotional dialogue No, it doesn't sound strange. I mean, one of the things it seems that it can do is it can root you in the sort of specifics of a place, Mm. but also perhaps can connect us with certain universal aspects of our human experience. And in your poem that you just read, it's striking that the words words like mother and father pop out to me because immediately you're placing us in, in... the most universal of things, the family, right? The the yes. thing that, for better or worse, you know, we all have in some shape or form a family. And that similarly in sea prayer, it's locating the story within a family, it's addressed from a father to a child, is something that literature can do, remind us of those universal aspects of having a family, having certain human kinships that we are that we share.
1: Yeah, I think the most important connections are the human connections. Those are the things of value. You know, it's not the watch you wear or the car you drive. It's it's the people you know. At all occasions, we share language. Language does this thing. You know, so at a birth, you'll want to record that maybe with a poem. At a wedding, you'll want to record that with a poem or a song. It it is where we we show the best of ourselves, and I think that that's important. I mean, I, you know, in seat prayer, he's. He's talking about a space that he once remembered and he's talking to us and sharing some of the, the magic so it's not lost.
0: Mm. Let's go to the next clip now since we've been talking about family from Khalid Hussaini.
2: I seem incapable of writing anything but family stories. I begin with an idea and I start writing it and I watch it before my eyes transform into a story about families. Uh, it seems to me the most natural playground to write in. Um, undoubtedly, it's because I'm from Afghanistan, and if there are Afghans in the audience, and I know there are some, they will echo what I'm saying, and that family is very central, not only to your life, but to the, way that, the way that you understand your entire community and, and how your society functions. It's it's a defining feature of who you are. its uh, We rarely had dinner in Afghanistan with just us and our parents. There was always somebody dropping in unannounced, and we would pull a chair and sit down and eat, and then an aunt would come and a cousin would come. It was just understood. You know, when I came to the United States, it's funny because this issue of privacy, having downtime. For us, downtime... (laughs) (laughs) Privacy was like another word for being lonely.
0: (laughs) that's clearly struck a chord. Yeah, there's some fellow
2: Afghans here. (laughs) You know, and downtime was when you were with your cousins and you all sat and you felt part of something bigger than you. You know, and so whenever I start to write, my stories inevitably turn towards that path and frankly that's how sea prayer is too this really is a story about a family unfortunately a family that's been splintered but a family nevertheless
0: how does that picture of afghan family life um relate to uganda
1: yeah i don't think you get a lot of downtime in uganda i think (laughs) there's very much an extended family i think um people adopt you as their you know you have extended cousins uncles aunts and people take pride in that they they take pride in the connection I think that that's also important. I think what both these books do, ironically, is is they they spark a sense of love. Like that's why the family is important. The struggle is there, but you know what they're struggling to reconnect is is the importance of who we are as as people. Not in the sense of arrogance, but more important in the sense of that life matters. In this kind of win win mentality, you can sometimes lose sight of that life matters and also that life is fragile. Mm. You know, and and that is the beauty of life—that it matters and that it is fragile. So it's like we're we're walking around holding cups of water, and if that is our life, we don't want to spill it.
0: And also, perhaps we, when we look from the outside through the media, through politics and headlines, we would see the structure of a country. We look at things like the leader of that country as the sort of signifier of that country. Mm. But looking at things as a family, it's a different structure and perhaps a more significant structure in the way that human beings structure their lives. The way that you're describing Ugandan family life is much more revealing of, of values and of, um, of how they treat each other.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean technically here, I'm, I'm the leader of my family, but my go-to people are my wife, my daughter, my son. When they're unhappy, I'm miserable, mm. you know? and, and I, I think we forget that, is it, that the, the people matter. As much as we have the leaders and we, we do need to codify things, so I get we need president, we need country, we need gross national product. But the, the building blocks is just like the amino acids of existence are the humans themselves, those, those small interactions. Like as he says, the mother-father connection, the, the, the son-father connection, the brother-sister connection. Those connections are important and
0: they need to be uh, nurtured. How does that relate to tribal structures as well? Because you mentioned, you know, that your tribe is between Kenya and Uganda. And how does family intersect with tribal life as well?
1: Tribes are big in, in in Africa in general. Like people say, you know, it's almost like here how we are with football teams. People are with their tribes, you know, like, you know, everyone's repping their own tribe, you know. But um, right. I think in times past, and we, we've seen this in different sectors of Africa, it's it's been quite horrific what that can lead to. I think now is a sense of we're in a position where Africa is in a sense of, of rebuilding and and restructuring itself and getting a sense of pride in, in who we are. The tribe is actually more important than the nation to a lot of people. So like who, what your tribe is, is more important than you being, oh, I'm from Uganda, but not, I'm from this tribe. Mm. That is the building block of who we are. Variance is, the, is, is what makes us complex and interesting.
0: And with all those layers in mind, um, let's hear another clip from Khalid about politics and the relationship between these stories and how it's interpreted in the political arena.
2: I I don't think it's apathy. I don't think it's... um, I don't judge people for that because I think it's how we've evolved as a species. You know, I think we're really well hardwired to respond to a single, visceral, powerful story But at some point, the human brain has a difficulty processing enormity. You know, once you hear over and over that 100 people drowned off the coast of Libya, or 50 people drowned, at some point it becomes so big that it's very hard to wrap your mental arms around it. And the response is to just kind of move on. And so this this process of psychic numbing that happens, and it's predictable. It's not just with this. This happens all the time. And that's why, we, that's why, as a writer, I feel that storytelling has a very important role in bringing it back, in making sure that we don't forget that behind the headlines, behind the dehumanising statistics, statistics and figures and so on, are human beings.
0: Nick, do you feel the sense of... You know, the purpose there that Khaled's describing the purpose of stories is to really counteract that kind of numbing sensation that numbers can inure in people. Yeah. In gender, sorry, in people.
1: Yeah, I think there is definitely, it's easy to be fatigued by the amount of data and information that we get about things happening in the world. We just look at it as, as a statistic. Mm. But what, you know, what Khaled is talking about is by, is by how do we reintegrate ourselves into the human connection? So how do I connect with that that boy on the beach in Syria? How do I connect with that man running from his country and not knowing he has to leave with tears in his eyes, you know, while he holds his mother's hand? That, how do we counter that fatigue is by seeing ourselves and what story allows us to do is to see ourselves in other people. Mm. It allows us to remove our, our bias. It allows us to expand our thinking and also to come out of our comfort zone. So in our comfort zone, it is easy to be naive. But outside of our comfort zone, there is only growth, and sometimes something scary, I might realize oh gosh i've you know for whatever I might have it easy, or I'm not trying hard enough it it, it doesn't matter, but what it does do is it it creates an understanding, and I think it's easy to have misunderstanding mm-hmm. when we're we're fatigued with information
0: I guess there's a difference between information and narrative as well because or or of detail which stays with you, so when mm-hmm. you read your poem earlier one of the lines that stuck in my mind was run to your knuckles become as white as handkerchiefs it stuck in my mind I think partly because it's it's an image in which a handkerchief which suggests crying suggests tears but also there's a sort of sense of surrender there so a physical image of a knuckle becomes something that's charged with drama and and humanity that's to me in the way that I think that the Alan Kurdi image was something that was really indelible for a lot of people because it was it was something they couldn't unsee mm. um, is that what poetry can do? It can create something that you can't unsee because it's rooted you in the specific and in the world of those people.
1: It it resonates as well. It's not just you can't unsee it it's that it, you, you, you keep seeing it. Mm. So it brings it back to light. It brings it to focus I could be in a stadium and I could be like oh there's so many people but then you suddenly notice oh look there's a lady crying on the third row. That's narrative and Mm. and poetry can do they can they can focus you in on something unnoticed that is important
0: and that that single unnoticed thing can tell you more about what's going on than all the data in the world
1: yes yes absolutely we're not trying to control the world what we're just trying to do is 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 to notice i think that sense of notice is is the important determiner Mm. you know so a lot of times what you know you know i can be looking at something oh, look, these are lovely apples, and I don't notice that underneath they're all rotten. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. it's what you notice, and I think that notice, that self-awareness, that connection is what drives the writer to the page.
0: You seem, as Khaled does, very hopeful, really, about the power that literature can exert in people's imaginations. You're dealing with really difficult subjects, civil war and, and death and violence. How sanguine do you feel about... What poetry and literature can do? You spoke about the need for greater forgiveness and the, the need for us to humanize these things. How how upbeat do you feel about what literature can achieve?
1: I mean, it it worked for me. I mean, I think it's what gives each writer is is infected by the writers that they've read in the past, so that they're, they're inspired by them. They like like I, I think literature takes the mantle on well. It 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 doesn't shirk from it. I think other things we when you talk about history it is usually just for the victors whereas literature is for people for that I'm in I'm enrolled I'm enrolled with something that can include me considering that I come from a space where I had to leave or I'm in a space where I, I don't always feel like I'm part of it language I belong to that country
0: we had Hilary Mantel here just a few weeks ago and she was talking about the relationship between fiction and history and she said something very similar to what you just said about how essentially there is a narrative of history that's described to us. But the moment you start looking at any of those details, it starts to crumble in Mm -hmm. your hands. And the only thing that can kind of bridge that gap is a story, is fiction, um, is the imagination. And it's true in any historical context, I guess. I agree with, I totally agree with that, yeah.
2: (laughs) I'm under no illusion that I'm going to spin a few beautiful words and change the world. But these stories must be told in the face of the hostility and in the face of uh, some of the rhetoric that we're seeing, because these are real stories and these are stories we should be thinking about when we think about EU's border policy and the continent's responsibility towards refugees.
0: So, for you, these things have to arise naturally out of the the work itself, and politics can't can't take the front seat in your work. Um, I want to ask you about the relationship between. Fatherhood and being a parent and writing. Khaled, um, at the beginning of his talk, he said that if he'd seen the photo of Alan Curdy 20 years ago, he would have had a totally different reaction. And the effect of being a father was quite profound. And he said, Being a parent utterly changes the lens in which you see the world. Um, Nick, I know you performed a show here at London Literature Festival back in 2013 called My Father and Other Superheroes You Are Yourself a Father. What's the relationship between parenting and poetry for you?
1: Uh, the obvious one is it's how I earn my money. So, <laughs> <laughs> so but uh, so that, that's the, the direct one. But parenting and poetry, um, I think I, I totally agree with that quote in the sense that I mean, even when I did uh, my father and other superheroes, I was a young father and and, and naive, and I think. But be, before fatherhood, all my notions of fatherhood were for want of a better word, fictitious, you know, made up. You know, it's, it's only when you become a father and you realize, wait a minute, there is a world I want to leave behind for someone else that's better than the world I'm in. Your tolerance for nonsense around that, it just decreases. So anyone trying to disrupt the world that I'm trying to create for my, my children or for my wife, I think through language I'm trying to create a better world. That's mm. what I realized. I don't, not intentionally. I don't know how I'll do that, but sometimes it means telling a hard story. Sometimes it means telling a beautiful story, or a combination of both. I think it was a, it was a emotional trigger. It's almost like having a jetpack attached to you at all times, you know. So,
0: so do you, you feel that you're now a superhero?
1: Is that the? <laughs> I, I've always been a superhero, but, <laughs> but I just didn't. I don't think I had the. I don't. I don't think I was using my powers. So it's like suddenly realizing, oh look, I've got heat
0: ray. You know, and uh, <laughs> what can I do with this? You know, so. <laughs> what would your superhero powers be? Would they be jetpack, heat ray? What, we, what would Nick McCoy's, maybe you already have them and you're just being modest.
1: Well, on my, on my Netflix, I've just made myself Luke Cage. So <laughs> okay. um, I would be indestructible. <laughs> yeah, because I would like to fly. I think if I could have two, it would be indestructible and fly. So it means you could, people could hit you and you, you wouldn't get hurt. But at the same time, you could be like, oh, no planes, no problem.
0: You know, sir. So. <laughs> yeah. um, Nick, what, what are you working on at the moment? What are you writing at the moment? So, um, um, I'm actually writing another
1: story. It's actually my story about how my mother smuggled me out of uh, um, Uganda in the Idi Amin regime. It's uh, we've turned it into a play. It's a two-hander, working with uh, Royal Alexander Wise, who recently produced Nine Nights and The Mountain Top, and also with Fuel Theatre. And that should be out in November. Initial showings at Oval House and then it'll tour next spring all over
0: the country. Fantastic. Yeah. And will you be um, traveling by jetpack? Well, yeah, or just walk through because I'm indestructible. (laughs) One or the other. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for talking to us. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thanks. I appreciate that. You can listen to more of what goes on at South Bank Centre in Think Aloud, the podcast that sheds light on the exciting things happening in the arts.
2: I'm Harriet Little from Southbank Centre's Think Aloud podcast. In our latest episode, we're talking about the Unlimited Festival celebrating disabled artists. Joining me is Jackie Hagan, who's talking about why she's moved on from making a fluffy comedy about having one leg. We've also got an interview with the blind musician Beluji Srivastar. And Jess Tom from Tourette's Hero answers our burning question. How do we talk about disability without being weird? So... Come along for some genuine insights, some comedy, and a fair few biscuits.
0: You can hear past episodes of the podcast at southbankcentre.co.uk forward slash podcasts.